I'm David W. Berner, and this is The Writer's Shed. Hello, everyone. This is episode six of the Writer's Shed podcast from Writer's Shed Press, an indie publisher from just outside Chicago with his office, yes, inside an 8x10 writing shed right here, inside of it right now on the property of its founder, me. And today in the shed, well, it's kind of the end of the day here. It's getting dark outside. The lights on the houses are coming on, and uh, you might even be able to hear a little bit of the wind in the background. We're having a bit of a windy evening tonight and this new microphone might be picking it up very well and the microphone is going to mean a lot to your ears today I hope we have a very special episode for you today it's the first of uh, a very special duo of shows writer shed stories writers reading their work Nick Young Bill Mathis and Varian Williams Wynn all wonderful writers, all short fiction for you today. First, this story, Shirako, by Nick Young. Prying it free, she lifted the picture so that it caught the moonlight filtering in through a grimy side window. She looked at it for a long moment, the image of a striking young man leaning against a gas pump, grinning broadly beneath a gray homburg cocked with insouciance atop thick black hair. The photo, taken with a cheap brownie, was crisscrossed with small cracks and creases, its deckled edges curled and frayed. She ran her thumb lightly over it, allowing the shadow of the years to lift. She had not intended it this journey, but the kid with the guitars in the back seat and grand hopes had changed that. Raising the glass, she drank and then drew deeply on her cigarette, exhaling, watching the smoke mingle with the moon haze. She closed her eyes and reclined the back of her head up against the cool plaster wall. She let her mind drift back to August 1951, the year she turned 18. Mother had been dead five years and Dad was ailing. That was a time when the long ribbon of highway brought a steady stream of travelers. That meant gas tanks to fill and work in the garage, more than her father could manage. So it fell to her. She could handle the pumps and had learned enough at Daddy's elbow to know her way around under the hood. So her dreams of secretarial school in El Paso had slipped away, across the hard pan and scrub beyond the far distant Cordillera. The demarcation of her life was set, and the days unspooled as regular as the rising of the wind. And then he drove up, the handsome young man with the Errol Flynn mustache and Hollywood dreams on his easy smile. It took no effort at all to let herself be mesmerized by the New Orleans lilt in his voice and the relaxed way he laughed with her while she had his car up on the lift repairing a damaged brake line. And when the job was done, with evening coming on, she pushed caution behind her yearning, closed the station early, and encouraged him to stay and have a meal. Daddy's up at his sister's in Twin Forks. Took him yesterday, so I sure wouldn't mind the company. And he was fine with that, appreciated the invitation— so he sat at the kitchen table, nursing a bottle of cold beer and smoking, while she prepared country-fried steak, mashed potatoes, and cornbread. As she worked, they talked, and it exhilarated her. Over supper, the beer flowed, and the conversation grew more personal, more intimate. By the time the dishes had been cleared and a half-moon hung in the southern sky, she knew where the night was taking them. She had known all along. She had wanted it, fearing that those few brief hours might be her only chance to fly above the dry dust of her young life. And so she went with abandon, withholding nothing. It had never happened before, nor would it again. 
In the morning before the sun was up, she made him a big breakfast, fuel for the road, she had said. They dodged around their self-consciousness as best they could, he joked, she feigned breeziness. After, when his car was out of the garage, its tank filled, and he was keen for the road, she asked if she might take a picture. She said that when he became a big movie star, she wanted to be able to prove to people he'd actually been there. He laughed loudly, promising that when that day came, he would return with a specially autographed studio publicity photo just for her. So she fetched a camera, and he posed by the pump as the wind was rising in the west and the sun in the east. There was just enough light, so she snapped the picture, the last one on the roll. "'Do me a favor and say hi to Montgomery Cliff,' she said, fighting against his going and the hollowness that had already taken root inside her. "'Maybe I'll bring him along when I come back,' he said, grinning, climbing in behind the wheel. And then, gunning the engine to life, with a wave of his hand out the window, he was gone. She watched as long as she was able before the wind whipped up and the speck of his car disappeared in the dust. The heat from the cigarette was beginning to burn her fingers. She looked down as the long ash fell to the desktop, and she stubbed out the butt, shook out a fresh smoke, and lit it using her thumb to fold the match and force it along the scratch strip until it caught fire. It was a trick that, like so many things, her daddy had shown her. She inhaled deeply, and it felt good. So did the last of the whiskey that she drained from her glass. It was late now. She looked again at the picture and raised a finger to smooth over the creases and gently caress the face of the handsome young man in the Hamburg. Outside, moonlight shimmered. The harsh wind had died to a murmur. It would be back in the morning. What a wonderful voice, huh? Nick and I have worked together in broadcasting, and uh, he is the consummate professional when it comes to uh, that voice of his. Bill Mathis wrote a piece for Writer Shed Stories also, and we love this piece. It's called Patched Up. Here's Bill. I was nine, a boy not paying attention, when a BB shot exploded my left eye. I've worn a patch ever since, 35 years. My father and brother Malcolm were target practicing with BB rifles in the nearby woods. I was inside our trailer, putting on makeup with Chrissy, my 11-year-old sister. Later, I washed the lipstick and eyeshadow off and went outside to watch them. I pushed some brush aside and stumbled directly into their line of fire. Bam! My eyeball detonated. I hollered and dropped to the ground. Dad yelled, Get up, son. It's only a BB. You'll have a bruise. Quit acting like a girl. Dad, it's in my eye. Dad looked and turned pale. Call darn it, kid. The ER staff called for an eye surgeon and stripped off my grubby clothes to put a gown on. That's when the true pain started. I was wearing Chrissy's underpants, lilac with little flowers. I loved them. Dad has barely spoken to me since. Everyone called me Patch. Patch was better than being called Patty. Wearing a patch changed the dynamics of who I was. I was less the kid who liked playing with dolls and loved dancing. I was Patch, the kid who took a BB in the eye. It's 2 a.m. I get out of the recliner next to my father's hospital bed in the VA. He's aged, looks puffy, a bit ashen. Patch? That you, son? He called me son. 
How the heck do I reply to that? I decide it's time to confront him. Why are you calling me son? You haven't called me son since you saw me in Chrissy's underpants. Dad pats the side of the bed. Sit down. Tell me about your life. I sit, too surprised not to do as I was told. I keep talking like I can't stop. I talk about my second partner, Ferdy, who made a ton of money when he sold his property to a developer. Unfortunately, he moved to South Carolina and started a, a new business down there. I brush my eyes when I tell Dad how long-distance relationships suck and we're about ready to call it quits. A nurse motions me toward the door. She says he's doing worse. Doctor says our options are running out. So he may not leave here alive? This condition may deteriorate quickly. If you have anything to resolve, I'd do it soon. I sit on the bed. Dad, I want to hear right now why you disconnected with me all those years ago. Son, I need to apologize and ask your forgiveness. It's not about you being a homo. Nope, son. I didn't have to fire that BB gun when I did. I yank my hand back and stand. Wait a minute. You haven't avoided me because I'm gay? You think you shot me? I got to get this off my chest. Your, your mom's older brother was a homo. It never bothered us. No, son, I've been carrying guilt over the BB accident. Malcolm said, let's fire on three. When he said one, he quick like saw you in the brush and lowered his gun. I wanted to teach you a lesson for being so clueless around guns. I decided I'd still fire, but in front of you. Scare some sense into you. Dad's crying. I could have lowered my gun, but I was committed to firing. You stumbled over a root just as I squeezed the trigger. He tugs me closer. Can you forgive me? I disentangled myself from his arms, stand and stretch. How could I not have realized my homosexuality had nothing to do with my father's attitude toward me? I try to remember anything he ever said directly, strongly, or critically about me being gay. Nothing pops up. My anger shifts. Thirty-five years he's felt guilty. That means every time he looked at me or thought of me, my patch continuously reminded him of his decision to teach me a lesson. I turned to yell, but stop. Like father, like son? If I fire, what good will it do? The man's going to die. I lay down, wrap my arms around him. Dad, you're right. I just realized you never said anything against gays. I forgive you. I love you. Thanks, son. I love you, too. I got one more thing to tell you. If you love someone, maybe you should follow him. It's hard to share love in two places. And the last of our three today, Marianne Williams' win. It's called Danger Mouse. From volume one. The ear-shattering blast of the IED detonating beneath the young soldier's feet sent his body corkscrewing through the cloud of dirt and flying debris before plummeting with a sickening thud onto the arid soil. 
the realisation of every soldier's worst nightmare brought the patrol to an abrupt halt. For seconds that lingered like the settling dust, not a sound was heard, not even a blinding curse or the inevitable call of medic. Nor did anyone move, that is apart from the regiment's recently joined medic. Radio for the chopper, she yelled, sprinting across the treacherous ground in the direction of the injured man. She was at the rear of the patrol, and the explosion had sounded towards the front. Bloody hell, the casualty must be more than 800 yards away. Would she make it in time, weighed down as she was by the medbergen on her back? Susie sprinted the best she could, her boots pounding the stony ground, as the soldiers she passed along the line screamed, Keep to the white line! Keep on the bloody line, you dozy bitch! Which white line, for heaven's sake? There were so many sprayed all over the ground. But she knew one false move, and she too would be done for. As she ran, countless thoughts flew through her mind. Would she cope? Yes, of course, she had to, and this was certainly no time for self-doubt. She'd show these macho, misogynistic soldiers who treated her with nothing but contempt since she'd arrived in Afghanistan that she was up to the job. From the day one, they'd made it plain by their hostility that she was neither what they'd been expecting nor wanted. Now was her opportunity to show them she was more than the useless chit of a girl, as one soldier had so charitably described her. But she also remembered how their assumptions were partly true, because as one had so aptly pointed out after she'd failed to open a jar of peanut butter at breakfast on her first morning, she was a fucking useless mouse of a girl who couldn't even take the lid off a jam jar. This, she knew, was one of their men's politer opinions of her. Within moments of the bomb going off, those initially shocked into immobility jumped into a pandemonic action, each and every soldier cursing, shouting at once, while seemingly running amuck as they swung their SA-80s in every direction. With one soldier sweeping the area for mines, others set about clearing an area for the Chinook to land, whilst two more, with well-rehearsed precision, gathered around the injured man and unfurled the collapsible stretcher ready for evacuation. The acrid smell of explosives and blood lingering in the dusty air confirmed to Susie that she'd made it. Breathing heavily and drenched in sweat, she dropped her gun, shrugged off the medbergen and squatted beside the heinously mutilated remains of a lad she knew vaguely by sight. Don't you just love the idea of writing coming to life through the voice of the writer? Well, we'll do this again with other writers real soon. This has been Episode 6 of The Writer's Shed. I'm David W. Berner. Our music is from iRay Music Production and interviews produced inside the shed. And you can find out more about Writer's Shed Press at writershedpress.com. Submit your work there, of course, and at Writer's Shed on Medium. You can also sign up for our newsletter there and find us at Writer's Shed Press on Twitter. The Writer's Shed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love for you to subscribe. Thanks for listening.